So Acts chapter 14, and we're beginning to read at verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 20. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities <coughs> excuse me, of Listeria and Derb and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there, was a, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round them, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derb. So let me just pray before Christoph comes and just opens that up for us. Father, we are so thankful for your word and for what you teach us through it. And Lord, we just see this tendency in our lives to elevate other people and other things over you. Lord, we just pray that as Christoph comes to speak, that you would just fill him with your spirit, Lord, that you would speak your words through him and give all of us just ears to hear what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for, for leading for us uh, and also for praying for me. Sarah and I were in touch this week before she was uh, preparing to lead for us and uh, she told me that she was going to step down from leading here. Um, 
that's a shame because I love it when when Sarah leads as I enjoy it when, when our other worship leaders lead too. The reason Sarah's choosing to step back from serving in that role here is because of the involvement that she and John have in the Clarewood Community Church, the work that we're doing there, the rejuvenating team that we have sent to work with that very small church to see if, if new life might come to that community. And I wonder if, if we ever have questions about that. Why would we do that? Why would we let some of our best people uh, leave the community and go somewhere else? Why would we give our life away like that? Well, I think this part of the book of Acts uh, gives some answers to that kind of a question. Uh, both the why question, why we would do that, and also a, a little bit the how question, how these things happened in the early church. So we're, we're back in this series in Acts. This is our, our third uh, week in this series, second series really of studies in the book of Acts, the, the Spirit-filled church, we're calling it. We picked up this series in chapter 13. In the opening verses there of chapter 13, we, we were introduced just very quickly to the church in Antioch. And in the space of a few verses, a picture was painted there of a, a diverse, a prayerful, a spirit-led community. But what we discovered about them very soon, this, this church in Antioch, is that there was a, a force at work in it. We called it a centrifugal force. That idea that a centrifugal force always drives a thing out from its center. Um, that seems to be what's happening in the early churches, both in Jerusalem and now in Antioch. They, they send uh, their, their people out. These churches give their life away. So those opening verses in uh, chapter 13, they tell us about the beginning of what we are calling Paul's first missionary journey. And just to be clear about where we're heading, by the time we got to the end of chapter 14, we've already finished that journey. So it's only, it's the two chapters that tell that story. I don't know about you, I, I find it hard to to map out Paul's journeys, where he was, when. But, but the first journey is, is recorded in just two chapters, verses 13 to 14. If we pop up the, the map there um, and have a look at it, it's a, a return trip. So the red line shows an outward journey, and then the, the blue line shows the return trip. We, we already have looked at how Paul and Barnabas went, first of all, to Cyprus. We thought about that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we traced their journey up through Perga and up to Antioch in Pisidia. That's, that's a different Antioch. Just, just to make a confusing thing even more confusing, there are two Antiochs. So there's an Antioch in Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch, and everything that we thought about last week in chapter 13, that sermon of Paul's that Richie looked at with you last week, that happened there in Pisidian Antioch. So I think we now know where we're at. We're up at the top of the map in Antioch, and then today's reading brings us to the, the terminus of the journey in the city of Derby before Paul starts the return journey and heads for home. This morning we're going to think particularly about what happened in that uh, town or city of Lystra. 
But I'd also like to take the opportunity to zoom out and to see what happens in this journey as a whole. So we're not going to give all our attention to the event in Lystra, but rather look at it and see what happens in general. What I'd like us to do is to say, well, more than just the specific things that Paul did and said, I want us to look for patterns, themes. Is there an approach, a strategy, if you like, for Paul? What is Paul's missionary strategy as he sets out to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? If we could discern something like that, it might offer us help as we continue the same work that Paul was involved in, the, the work of obeying the great commission of Jesus Christ, of bringing the gospel to the world. So let's begin at the end of our passage, actually, the part we haven't read yet, so please have the Bible open before you. We haven't even read these verses, verses 21 to 28 of that passage. If you had those open before you, that would be great. Acts 14, 21 to 28. As I say, Luke's telling us here about the terminus of the journey in the city of Derby. And he tells us that Paul and Barnabas preached the good news in that city and won a very a large number of converts. Everywhere they go, they do the same thing. They preach the gospel. And often people are saved. Sometimes a lot of people are saved. They commit themselves to Jesus Christ. They become his followers. Notice then that Luke records the return journey telling us that they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. It's important to hear that we don't miss that. So far we've seen Paul going from city to city, preaching, people being saved, and then he moves on to the next city, preaches, and more people are saved, moves to the next city, preaches, and more people are saved. And if if it was left at that, we might have some sense that Paul is, is simply an evangelist. Someone who goes around giving gospel presentations, introducing people to Jesus. He's around like a, like a midwife to, to birth them, but then he moves on and he forgets about them. But that's not the case. That's not who Paul is. If we have a sense of Paul uh, working along those lines, then we've misunderstood him. Paul is a discipler too. So on his return journey, he makes sure that he goes back to these cities where he's been before, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So remember what I said. We're going to take a step back and see what he's doing. What kind of work is Paul doing on this first missionary journey? If we do that, we'll get a feel for what his approach or his strategy is. So he's an evangelist, he's a discipler, but look at verse 23. Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for the new believers in every church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. Churches and elders. Paul doesn't leave these cities until he started a community and until he's raised up a leadership for that community. Paul's not just, it turns out, an evangelist and a discipler. He's a church planter and an equipper of leaders. 
we're going to see throughout this series that this is Paul's strategy for obeying the great commission of Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, to disciple people, to establish communities of Jesus followers, and to raise up leaders. Now, if we're going to look for one term in modern parlance that might capture those disciplines, we might say simply that Paul is a church planter. He's not trying to save individual people, bring individual people to a a knowledge of Jesus Christ. No, he wants to see communities of Jesus followers established in every part of the Roman Empire that he can possibly get to. These churches that Paul planted, I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning beginning to get a feel for what kind of churches they were, what was important in these churches, what was important to Paul in these new communities. Well, if you were with us last week, where Richie looked at the passage in chapter 13, Luke tells us about the visit to Pisidian Antioch. The largest part of the passage, from verse 16 right through to 41, summarizes a gospel sermon that he preached in the synagogue in that city. Now, feel free to scan your eye back over that, um, back over the, the passage that, that Richie preached then. At the same time, have a look at today's passage, which we have already read. There's no long sermon uh, recorded in there. You might not even have spotted that there was any preaching or teaching. I, I suppose you could argue there isn't. What Paul says is in response to, to an incident that arises, but Paul does preach the gospel. Look at the section beginning at verse 8, chapter 14. Paul's healed a crippled man. Uh, by the way, that's normal. Uh, let's not forget that from our first series in Acts. The followers of Jesus Christ, when he returned to heaven, just continued to do all the stuff that Jesus did. Jesus preached, so they preached. He healed people, so they healed people. He raised people from the dead, so they raised people from the dead. There's this continuity between the work of Jesus and the work of his followers. The life of his followers is his spirits on them. That's really striking in the book of Acts. Lystra is a pagan city. The dominant culture isn't the Jewish culture where people know about the God of Israel and have some sort of allegiance to him. And we can see that immediately in how the people respond to Paul and to Barnabas. They reckon when they see this healing that the gods have come among them. And they don't mean Yahweh. They don't mean the God of Israel is at work among them. They mean the the gods of the, the Greek pantheon. So Barnabas must be Zeus and Paul must be Hermes. He's the spokesman. And it's into this context that Paul then preaches the gospel. Look at verse 15. He pleads with the crowd, Men, why are you doing this as in worshipping us? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news or the gospel. So what is the gospel? What's the gospel for Lystra? It's an invitation to turn away from these worthless things to the living God 
who made heaven and earth and everything in them. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a call to turn away from idols, false gods, to come to the living God. There's only one who created the earth. There's only one who's given us life. There's only one who knows what freedom and joyful living looks like. And if you're following any other gods, you're missing him. As I, uh, well, some of you know we're, we have this community Bible experiment running at the moment where some of us have tried to commit to reading through the Bible in a whole year. I can still remember in January reading the book of Acts. And I was struck by the preaching. Uh, I've read Acts a number of times, but the thing that really stood out for me this time is the, the preaching, Peter's preaching, Paul's preaching, the vibrancy of the gospel preaching. In chapter 2, in the great Pentecost sermon, you have Peter talking about Jesus and he says, God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love that. A really vivid image personifying death, death with its grip on Jesus and Jesus throws it off. That's a great image as we go into Easter. Isn't that a brilliant preacher's image? Chapter 3, Peter gives us another wonderful uh, metaphor. Peter says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. The author, the one who conceived it, the one who birthed it. There is no life other than him. How, How could you possibly try to take life from him? He's the author of life. The apostles, this, this vibrant preaching, they weren't backward in the, the point of their gospel presentations. One thing that struck me again reading Acts, uh, this, this really just jumped off the page. It's, it's there. It's unavoidable. What's the purpose of the gospel? What, what was the purpose of Jesus' saving work? It's the forgiveness of sins. Some people want to define the work of Jesus, the importance of Jesus along some other lines, but the, the, the text doesn't allow it. So in, for example, the passage Richie looked at with you last week, chapter 13, verse 38, Paul tells us that it's through Jesus that the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The, the language is powerful. They, they know that Jesus has come to forgive sins. But these early apostles, they're always preaching for a response. Acts chapter 4, Peter tells the Sanhedrin, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Last week you learned a memory verse together. Paul's response to the jailer in Philippi, If I'd been here and I could get the tune that Richie taught you, I'd sing it for you. What is it? We chose a simple verse. We wanted one that our kids could take away with them too. What did Paul say to the jailer in Philippi? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The churches that Paul planted were centered on the gospel. 
we've had some conversations in our discipleship group recently with this uh, close to home stuff about being an intergenerational community. We've talked a lot about the life of our community and a couple of times, two or three times, we've, we've reflected on a, on a very powerful truth. Sometimes people call Kirkpatrick Memorial a homogenous group. They say we're all roughly the same. I say, really? You mustn't know anybody. Every, like, I know hundreds of people in this community and they're so diverse. So if we imagine that we can gather around some sort of commonness that's inherent in ourselves, I think we're doomed to fail. Much better this. Much better this to say, actually, we have nothing in common. We're not here because we're all nice people who tend to think roughly the same things about things. No. We have only one thing in common. And it's not inside of us. It's, it's him. It's Jesus Christ. Folks, my prayer for Kirkpatrick Memorial as we continue to grow and to develop and become whatever it is God wants us to be, that we're founded on and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we have nothing else. That's our only hope. But we have nothing else to offer the world either because salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let's finish by putting Paul's first two gospel presentations from this missionary journey side by side. The gospel in Lystra, we've already mentioned this. Uh, it's not strictly a sermon, but there's, Paul reckons he's sharing the gospel. This is what the gospel has to sound like for Gentiles. People who don't know about the God of Israel, don't know that they should have any allegiance to him. We need to engage them on other terms. Turn from idols is Paul's message. In effect, what Paul's saying to the people in Lystra is you think you're free. You think you've found life with these Greek gods, with the lifestyle that they lead you into. You're not free. You need Jesus. The things that you've given to yourself are false gods. They will fail you. They are failing you. They don't fill your hearts with joy. But Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, he, he will. But if you look then at the gospel in chapter 13, the gospel in Pisidian Antioch for the Jews, it's a very different message. Best summarized in verses 38 and 39, if you have a look. Paul's basically saying to these Jews, he, he recounts the story of Israel for them, culminating in Jesus Christ, and, and he ends up saying to them, you think you can please God by being good. That's the religious way. You think you can please God by being good, but you're not good enough and you won't ever be, because none of us can be. You need Jesus. You need him to be your righteousness for you. To be the goodness that you can't achieve under that law of God. Very interesting. 
two totally different messages, two totally different approaches. They're both biblical. Paul says to religious people, people who know the Bible and have some understanding of the biblical God, you think you're good, but you're not good enough. You need Jesus. And he says to pagans, you think you're free, but you're not. You're enslaved by these idols that you're worshipping. It's only in Jesus that you find joy and freedom. So here we have Paul presenting the gospel, same guy presenting the gospel twice in two different ways. Actually, if you did a study of it, and if you looked at every time Paul preached in the book of Acts, you'd discover that there is no standard gospel message for Paul. There are some non-negotiable themes, but the message will be adapted to meet the particular needs of a particular congregation. We might say that Paul is preaching and planting in a context-sensitive way, Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you think I'm making too much of just these two uh, passages, looks, summaries, these edited versions of Paul's preachings. Well, think for a second about the, the book of Romans. It's classically recognized as, as Paul's fullest articulation uh, of the gospel. In Romans, sin is defined as falling short of the glory of God. We miss the standards of God's law. We fall short of God's glory. But sin's also defined as slavery. Someone else or something else is controlling you and you're missing out on freedom and life. Both there, both in the book of Romans. Because different times and different people need to hear different aspects of the gospel. Folks, that's important for us to get our heads around. It means that religious people or people who are at least familiar with a biblical worldview, if we want to approach them with the good news of Jesus, we might well approach them through the traditional gospel presentations that have served us well so far. One that I have loved to use over the years is Two Ways to Live. Maybe somebody knows that little booklet. It's a way of sharing the gospel with uh, people who are seekers. The Christianity Explored course, with its uh, focus on Mark's gospel, taking a chunk of the Bible and just reading and studying it. That method works very well with people who have already some grasp of the Bible or, or the Christian worldview. It's what I would call an Acts 13 approach to sharing the gospel. But some people aren't ready for that. They've grown up outside of the church. They have a poor understanding of the biblical narrative. And they're going to need a different kind of journey. That's why, by the way, if, if you remember a few months ago, I was advocating a, a more questioning approach to evangelism and appointed you to a podcast from Randy Newman on questioning evangelism. That's why the makers of the Christianity Explored course recently changed um, from that presentation only and they complement it now with a Life Explored course which doesn't go quite so immediately to the, the gospel 
uh, as in the, the recorded gospel in Mark, but starts further back with life's big questions and the questions of our allegiances and our idolatries. The truth is, different communities need to hear the gospel in different ways. We need to learn to be context-sensitive. As I was reflecting on this, folks, it strikes me that this might be one of the reasons why we're struggling to reach our city and our community for Christ. We still say only the same things that we said in a Christendom era in the same way. We still give almost exactly the same presentations that we did in a time when everybody knew the Bible story and was living somewhat under the Christendom uh, umbrella. Paul, from whom we're learning a lot here, learned from the very beginning of his gospel ministry to contextualize his message to the different communities that he was going to. I had a, a, I'm having a chance, I suppose, to learn to try and do this. Last Sunday morning, I was with uh, John and Sarah in Clarawood, uh, at Clarawood Community Church. It's a totally different place than this. It's a mile away from here, but just very, very different. Uh, the people who will gather there are mostly from a, a somewhat different background. It was a smaller community for a start, 15 adults rather than 150 or 200. Somewhere from a different socioeconomic background than many of us here are. Different journey through life, different career path, different education. So my challenge as I go there is, is not to try and do the thing that we do here and impose it there. My challenge, my question is, what does the gospel need to be and sound like in Clarewood? In what ways will it be different than it would be at Kirkpatrick Memorial this Sunday morning? I found that I was starting to come up with some answers. I'm no expert in this, having to learn how to do this. It's interesting, Paul's idea that, that we're slaves, that came to the fore in last week's presentation of the gospel. Because I was teaching the, the Exodus, Moses leading the people out of Egypt, the, the Lamb, the Passover. So I found myself sharing with the people there the need that we all have to be set free from all of our addictions all of our slavery. Because it was a different context than here, I, I felt I, I needed to be very visual. I used illustrations from movies that the people there might have seen. Folks, I'm only learning, and I'm really beginning to think about this very much. When we're giving our life away, anywhere in this community beyond ourselves, we've got to learn to translate. We've got to learn to be context sensitive. We're going to come back to all of these things uh, over the next few weeks as we continue our journey in the book of Acts. But Paul's missionary strategy, what was it? It was to plant churches, 
churches that were centered on the gospel, but that were also sensitive to the context where they found themselves. If we could manage to be as courageous as Paul and those early apostles were, I believe that God could do wonderful things through us in this city, but also continue to transform us for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passion that you put in Paul and Barnabas, the apostles of the early church, that centrifugal force that drove them out from the churches where they were with the gospel throughout the the known world of their time. Thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for the, the wisdom and the insight that you gave them by your spirit. The gospel was the center of everything that they did at the heart of all of their communities. But Lord, we thank you too for the skill that you gave Paul and those early apostles to to re-preach the gospel in, in the ways that it needed to be heard by the people they were bringing it to. Lord, I pray for each one of us, for this community. I pray for a deeper than ever commitment to the gospel, for a hand gripping it stronger than we've ever held on to it before. But Lord, I pray too that we would never let our understanding of your work in our lives fossilize to become some fixed thing that we simply repeat and repeat and repeat without thought or or wisdom. We pray instead, Lord, that your spirit would blow through us with a creativity as we cling to the gospel that we become free in our proclamation of it. That we can look any brother or sister in the eye, any man or woman we meet, and be able to share the, the words of life with them in terms that they can understand. Lord, work in this church for our renewal, but also so that you can use us to change this city and this island and this world. Amen.